If you happen to be in need of a new t-shirt, hoodie, sticker, journal, or magnet, and want to help support this podcast, why not kill two birds with one stone and visit our official merch store? Check out the ever-growing selection of designs inspired by Japanese history at ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com. Thank you for your support. Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 3, Episode 9, Buddhism Comes to Japan. In the previous episode, we strolled through the rough history of Buddhism up until its introduction into Japan. While I touched briefly on the concept of communal and individual religions, I feel the need to emphasize just how invested the Yamato government was in maintaining that system. The monarch was primarily the head of an entrenched belief system, which meant that their power and the power of many of their supporters was intrinsically linked to performing rituals to appease the gods and ensure the prosperity of the whole nation. The Nakatomi and Inbei clans were the primary clans who upheld the traditional ritual calendar, and they viewed Buddhism as a threat to their very purpose at court. They would soon recruit dangerous allies who likewise believed that any such changes might amount to a threat to their own power and influence. It is a common mistake to assume that the ensuing conflict that erupted was religious alone. The Soga clan, after all, had been lobbying for the Yamato court to more closely reflect the grandeur, pomp, and spectacle of Baikje and the other peninsular states. It seems likely that the Mononobe clan saw the question of adopting Buddhism as part of a larger trend of government reform through which the Soga might marginalize them and even stifle their influence at court. Politics and religion were intertwined, certainly. But most historians agree that the conflict was political in nature, and that the two sides that formed, while being Buddhist and anti-Buddhist, were also pro- and anti-political reform. A quick note on the Japanese names during this period before we return to the narrative. You may have noticed the Japanese word no showing up in the middle of people's names like Soga no Iname or Mononobe no Okoshi. This is a possessive article in Japanese, and thus the names translate to Iname of the Soga and Okoshi of the Mononobe. I will continue to use this system of naming for the remainder of this season, but will probably discontinue its use when we come to the Nara period in Season 4. Although this practice continued through the much later Kamakura period, I think it causes the longer names to drag, and the old-fashioned sound of it is best left here in the Yamato period. Just keep in mind that Soga no Umako is from the Soga clan, not from the Sogano clan. When Soga no Iname agreed to accept the statue of Buddha and the sutras on King Kinmei's behalf, 
he was not merely trying to enhance his reputation for piety. This is usually understood to be part of a larger effort of the Soga clan leaders to enhance and consolidate political power in Japan into the hands of the Omi, acting on behalf of the monarchy, of course. The gifts arrived from Baikje in 552 with dramatic fanfare and pomp, which would have been a regular occurrence on the Korean peninsula and even among certain factions within the Chinese mainland. Banners, musical instruments, accompanying monks reciting chants, and everyone dressed in bright, fashionable colors and designs. There can be little doubt that this delegation was impressive and attractive to the native residents of Japan. When Soga no Iname had this procession march to his family temple and set the image of the Buddha in a place of honor, he was complicating a delicate situation, and we have every reason to believe that he understood how his actions would be perceived. This was not just a statement of personal piety and choreophilia, but a provocation aimed at the conservative clan leaders who had been obstructing his efforts at increasing the monarch's, and thus his own, political power for years, probably decades. At first, the Nakatomi clan was merely irritated at the inclusion of what they understood to be a peninsular deity in a pantheon meant for Wa people. The monks who came along did their usual work of preaching to the curious and gaining converts, though these early efforts yielded minimal results and were hampered by both a general suspicion of foreigners and the fact that the monks really weren't safe anywhere save for the estates belonging to the Soga clan. Then disaster struck. In the same year the Buddha arrived, a smallpox epidemic swept through Japan, killing thousands. A common feature among isolated people groups who live on remote islands is that they are not as regularly exposed to as many diseases as their land-based counterparts on the contiguous continent. This means that whenever a new illness spreads to them, their survival rate is much lower because their immune systems are comparatively weak. Continental East Asia was plagued by several waves of smallpox throughout the mid-500s, and when this illness came to Japan, it devastated the population to a degree which, even in light of the recent COVID-19 pandemic, we really can't conceive. To the people of Wa in the 500s, such a deadly and painful plague had no other explanation than angry local deities. During the normal course of events, such a catastrophe might mean more purification rituals, more abstention from the village ascetics, and probably a few years of famine as fields went unworked by their now-departed tenants. The outbreak that occurred in 552, however, was blamed without hesitation on the Soga clan's adoption of a foreign deity. The Nakatomi and Mononobe clan leaders succeeded in convincing King Kinmei that the outbreak was caused by the regional deity's anger at the presence of a foreign god. At least, that is the story we read in the Nihon Shoki. It is very possible that instead of an orderly procession simply obeying the king's commands, it may have been an angry mob that invaded the Soga temple and took the Buddha statue down. 
they hauled it away, mutilated its face, and tossed it in a nearby river. If this had been the end of the incident, Japanese history might have taken a very different path. However, another massive smallpox outbreak began shortly after the statue was tossed into the river, leading people to whisper that perhaps they had misinterpreted the signs and that perhaps they had incurred the wrath of the deity they had just tried to drown. Thus, the statue was pulled from the river and placed once more in the Soga clan's temple. King Kimmei, firmly under Soga influence, made a point of protecting the monks and discouraging persecution. Kimmei died in 571 and was succeeded by his son, who was remembered as King Bidatsu. It became clear during King Bidatsu's reign that the Omuraji Mononobe no Moriya had, by this point, firmly allied with the Nakatomi clan and opposed the spread of Buddhism. While Soga no Iname died in 570, he was succeeded by his son Soga no Umako, who inherited the title of Omi and boldly set out to continue supporting his father's vision of a strong central Japanese royal court which more closely resembled that of Baikje, Silla, and even Koguryo, with the Soga clan leaders in permanent positions of power. Like his father before him, Soga no Umako invited craftspeople from Korea and China to come and serve him in Japan, and likewise promoted Chinese literature, both philosophical and religious. He invited monks and pressed King Bidatsu to extend his protection over the growing faith so that they could spread Buddhism across the land. Bidatsu walked a fine line, wanting to appease the Mononobe and their conservative allies, while also desiring to increase Korean influence at court. The Nihon Shoki claims that he sent envoys to both Baikje and Silla. King Bidatsu himself contracted smallpox and died in 585, the first known monarch of Japan to die from the illness. Soga no Umako moved quickly, gathering enough support to place King Yomei on the throne. Yomei himself desired largely to keep the peace, and the Nihon Shoki claims that he was a devout follower of both the indigenous beliefs and Buddhism, and saw no need for conflict between the two. The leader of the Mononobe clan, who because he inherited his office was also an Oburaji, was Mononobe no Moriya. His counterpart, ally, and co-conspirator was Nakatomi no Katsumi. This union between a military clan and a ritualist clan would prove very dangerous to Soga no Umako and his allies. Mononobe no Moriya appears to have prepared fairly well for the impending conflict. I think it is likely that he started making practical plans as soon as King Yome was elevated to the throne. In addition to being a committed Buddhist, Yome's mother was not just any Soga princess, but the Omi Soga no Umako's sister. In 587, any hopes of resolving the conflict peacefully were dashed to pieces, after a reign of just two short years, King Yomei died. 
Although official accounts indicate that he died of illness, there is sufficient reason for us to believe in this case that he may have been assassinated, possibly through poison. Mononobe no Moriya and Nakatomi no Katsumi seem to have acted with surprising swiftness upon the monarch's death, and their dislike for King Yome's religious policies are only too well known. King Yome's cousin Soga no Umako sprang quickly into action once it became obvious that the Mononobe were preparing to lead an army into Yamato. Seeking to aggressively stamp out this rebellion against the Soga clan's authority, Umako and his various commanders tried several times to drive the Mononobe from fortified positions. The Nihon Shoki testifies that the Mononobe deployed a sort of primitive palisade called an Inaki, which is made from bundles of rice stalks. Several times various Soga warbands tried to dislodge their enemies from behind these structures and were driven back, suffering casualties in the process and retreating westward until they came to an area between Mount Shigi and Mount Ikoma, which is around 30 kilometers east of modern-day Osaka. That's about 18 miles for our Western listeners. Because of their intertwinement with the royal family, a considerable number of those fighting alongside the Soga clan were members of the Yamato dynasty. While I don't think any of the immediate candidates for heir to the throne were involved in the melee, there is one particularly charismatic and historically important blue blood whom I have been very eager to tell you about. His birth name was Prince Umayado, a name which translates to stable door because he was allegedly born in front of a stable. A hundred years after his death, he would become known by the name Prince Shotoku, which is the name I will use for him from this point forward for simplicity's sake. The details of his life are considered semi-legendary, but he very likely did exist and may have been a champion for Buddhism. He'll get his own episode later this season, because he became very influential, but for now we're going to focus on his actions alongside Soga no Umako in 587 as laid out in the Nihon Shoki. Having lost several engagements with the Mononobe so far, things were looking grim for the Soga and their allies when they banded together somewhere near Mount Shigi called Shigisan in Japanese. As the various separate warbands joined together, Prince Shotoku, then 13 if his Nihon Shoki birth year is to be believed, cut down a sacred tree and carved from it an image of the four heavenly kings. Who are these four heavenly kings, you are probably wondering? Buddhists of that time believed that the four heavenly kings were each guarding a cardinal direction and that they protected those who faithfully sought awakening. I'll post some pictures on the blog. Please check them out, because they look pretty awesome. The story goes that Prince Shotoku took the image he had carved of the four heavenly kings and placed it on his forehead, vowing along with Soga no Umako to sponsor the building of a great temple dedicated to them if his troops won the coming battle. Allegedly, this encouraged their flagging troops and gave them the morale boost they needed to organize and prepare. Just as an aside, 
it's best not to push too much stock in the exact veracity of little vignettes like this for a variety of reasons we'll explore in later episodes. We don't have a lot of detail about the ensuing Battle of Shigisan, and what little detail we do have is subject to the romanticization of later generations. It seems likely that a lot of the battle was fought on foot, though the warriors would have had access to horses which they might use to ferry themselves to different parts of the battlefield. As the fighting commenced, the Soga troops gradually lost ground to the battle-hardened warriors of the Mononobe. However, their fortunes changed dramatically when an archer fighting for the Soga loosed an arrow that struck Mononobe no Moriya. He died shortly thereafter, and his troops immediately fell into disarray, flying to their horses to escape and getting cut down by eager Soga swordsmen. The Mononobe clan itself never recovered from this disaster, and many of their most senior-ranking members were cut down. Those family members who were not present at the battle fled their homes, changed their names, and disappeared from the historical narrative. While their clan suffered the most severe consequences, their allies suffered as well. Nakatomi no Katsumi was killed at the battle, which was a terrible blow to his clan. However, the Nakatomi still had a generally favorable relationship with the rest of the court, and Soga no Umako doesn't seem to have accumulated enough power yet to be rid of them. One possible motive for the Soga clan's adoption and sponsorship of Buddhism is that they may have been trying to monopolize religion under their own purview and gradually marginalize the Nakatomi and other rustic ritual practitioners. This is where we come to an interesting bump in the road. While Soga no Umako obviously wanted the people of Wa to adopt Buddhism, and the Nihon Shoki certainly makes it sound as though the royal family agreed with this maneuver, there's not a lot of hard evidence that any party besides the Soga clan was willing to stick their neck out. Prince Shotoku is credited with the founding and support of Shitennoji Temple in Osaka, a temple indeed dedicated to the four heavenly kings, but even this is questionable, and it is possible that the prince was not, in fact, the pious patron the chronicles make him out to be. You might think that the Soga's possible attempt at forming an independent religion outside the royal family's control was a threat to the king's authority and tantamount to treason. Such, it seems, was the power of the Soga clan. One of the initial problems the Soga faced in this endeavor was education. There were many monks who had come over from Baikje, as well as other Korean states, and a steady number of converts who, like the Buddha, were leaving their homes and taking vows to follow the precepts of the emerging orders. As the Soga clan began sponsoring the building of great temples, a need arose for better-trained, higher-ranking clergy capable of taking on greater responsibilities and organization. Thus, many Japanese monks, when they had reached the upper limit of training available on their isles, traveled to China to continue their training. While they would eventually benefit greatly from the knowledge of the Chinese Buddhists who hosted them, 
this journey was not without its share of culture shock. No doubt they gaped at the massively awesome temples, palaces, and other such buildings which dwarfed any structure created in Japan. Likewise, the sight of a Chinese monarch with a massive retinue and impressively decorated regalia would have probably stunned the visitors upon their first viewing. Not all of these surprises were positive developments for the devout. Under the system mandated in the Chinese sects, in order to be recognized by the rank of bhikkhu, which is a fully qualified monk, you had to swear to follow the precepts before three mentoring monks and seven witnessing monks. Because of the newness of Buddhism in Japan, monks there were in the habit of swearing to their vows before only one or two such fully qualified monks. In many cases, this irregular ordination was rejected under the Chinese system, and they had to accept the lower status of shami, or semi-qualified monk, and work their way up all over again, which meant many long years away from home, sometimes even decades. Gradually, monks began returning to the archipelago and bringing with them copies of various Chinese books, particularly the classics, as well as contemporary political theory, which they passed on to the Yamato court as gifts. In the years that followed, which we will study in closer detail in upcoming episodes, the clash between the traditional powers and Soga innovations would persist. When natural disasters struck, the monarch and the Soga leaders would sometimes compete over which religious rituals would be carried out in response. The Soga would order their many temples to chant sutras and perform other such magical activities, and the monarchs might order cleansing rituals and abstentions to be held at relevant shrines. Over time, the sovereigns would also support various Buddhist efforts in hopes of gaining their own spiritual advantage over the upstart clan that was allegedly serving them. This amounted to a gradual twofold compromise. The Buddhist authorities on Japan would eventually syncretize the existing deities and adopt them as bodhisattvas. Those are entities which are on the correct path to becoming enlightened, and which exist to help others reach their own awakening. And the monarch would eventually retain final authority over which initiates would be allowed to be ordained as monks. This effectively allowed Buddhism and Shinto to peacefully coexist while preserving the king's status as both head of the church and head of the state. You might be wondering about which precepts the monks were required to keep in order to join this growing religion. There are 250 in all, and to help us remember them, I've composed a handy mnemonic device. Just kidding. The primary precepts were to not kill, not steal, not engage in sex, not to drink alcohol, not to eat anything after midday, and not to tell anyone they had achieved enlightenment. The rules became more strict, at least on paper, the higher you were promoted within the temple or monastery, but generally revolved around these primary abstentions. The Japanese monks, in addition to training initiates and following their sworn precepts, were expected to pray to both the imported bodhisattvas and those local deities whom they had reclassified 
on behalf of the entire nation. Here is one area where the Japanese art of utilizing a foreign idea and reshaping it to suit their needs is on full display. If you were a piously inclined person who wanted nothing more than to seek your own individual awakening, that was fine, as long as you remembered that your efforts were also supposed to benefit the larger community. Thus, a religion was conceived that served both as an individual religion and a collective communal religion at the same time. In the next episode, we'll return to the Korean Peninsula and catch up with our old friends Koguryo, Baikje, and Silla. Until then, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at A History of Japan, visit the online store ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com, and find us on the web, ahistoryofjapan.com. Thank you.